you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, while you're turning there, I do want to dispel the rumor. I'm fine. I do not have COVID. And I have never had COVID. At least not yet. My wife had COVID. She's recovering and she's doing fine. And in fact, there's still a few more in our church that are dealing with COVID. I do want to let you know, just so that we can pray better, uh, John Watkins has uh, COVID, but you need to remember, I, I think it, he has, it's MS, is that what he has? He has MS, so that puts him in a bad situation. Um, so just pray for, uh, pray for John that he will get through this and things will be okay. Uh, I know that he was having a difficult time, but I don't know what that meant when I was speaking to Diane as to what all was going on, but I know that uh, with MS at times you can struggle with your energy, and one of the things that COVID will do is zap you of your energy. Um, so just be in prayer for John. Uh, doesn't mean we don't pray for the others that have it, but you know sometimes those who have these other conditions, uh, they are at much higher risk of suffering uh, more greatly from, from these things. So I uh, just wanted to kind of bring that to your mind so that you can be praying for him and, uh, and for Diane. Anyway, let's go to the Lord. Father, again, as we come before you, we are grateful, Lord, for your faithfulness. And Father, as we kind of think back over the past couple of years and all of the issues that have been surrounding this virus and the people that it has affected and then all the things that have come out of this as a result of this. Uh, Father, we are tired of the virus and we are tired of everything related to the virus. But Father, we know that as we continue on through this year that this is something that's not going to go away tomorrow and there are those that we know and love that uh, have gotten the virus and we know, Lord, that for those who have other conditions, they face the possibility of, uh, of having much more dire results as a result. So, Father, one of those individuals is our brother John. And, Father, we, we ask that you would strengthen his body. We pray, Lord, that uh, his battle with the virus will be short-lived, and that he will overcome this soon, uh, and that he will then soon be on the road to recovery. We ask, Lord, that all those in our church that have COVID, that the same would be done for them. Uh, but, Father, we are just reminded of those who are perhaps in a more vulnerable position. We are grateful, Lord, that we have you to depend upon. And we are grateful, Father, for all the good that you've done for us. And Father, we ask now that as we continue our worship, as we turn now to the portion of our service that we've committed ourselves to really the reading and the studying and the proclamation of your word, we ask that you would grant us understanding of scripture. We pray also, Lord, that our approach to your word would always be that that we desire, Father, to understand and also to apply. That, Father, there would be a willingness on our part to submit to the Word of God, to want to incorporate into our lives, knowing, Lord, that doing this will really bring about in our lives greater happiness and joy and contentment. Father, I think we all would like to have that. We also want to be used by you much more effectively in the lives of others. And we know, Lord, that the prerequisite to that is also submission to your word. And so, Father, we are grateful as always that you preserved your word for us. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, reads this way. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So what I want to do this morning, we're going to be looking at this passage again next week uh, as we continue to develop this. So what we're going to do this morning is, in a sense, we're, we're kind of going to, we're going to reset the table. And what I mean by that is that Paul has talked about uh, suffering, persecution, affliction. Uh, he's talked about what our attitude should be, what our expectations should be. He talks about what God has done for us, what Christ has suffered on our behalf for us, all those things. So I want to come back to uh, the emphasis here, which he's talking about, again, the proclamation of the gospel, but we need to have a proper paradigm of ourselves and, again, of the life that we are to live for God. Now, when I say the life that we are to live for God, today what I mean by that is not that you and I are to live in obedience to Scripture, which we are. But I'm talking about really the attitude that we are to carry with us. That, that's the paradigm that will help us to not only understand what's going on, but I think put us in a position where we are better able, by our life and words, to bring glory to Christ. And that's what Paul's concern is. The reason why I believe we need to emphasize this is because of the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that is almost paranoid about making sure that everything is always is as positive as possible. And anything that sounds negative or anything that sounds derogatory, we just <coughs> automatically mark that as bad and we need to move away from that. And I don't think, in fact, I'm convinced that's not the attitude that Christians should have. Paul is going to speak a great deal about the reality of who we are. We need to remember the truth of the word of God, that sin has deeply affected the entire human race. And that's both believers and non-believers alike. And this setting of reality is to give to us the proper attitude that we are to have to be used by God. And so we'll see this being developed as we work through it today, and hopefully I'll be able to make the right types of emphasis and help you to understand the kind of paradigm that I'm talking about that I believe will free us from the bondage of the way our world thinks. Because there is a bondage there. There are maybe many, I, I'm not sure what the percentage is, but there's just this, it's almost like there's a, a denial of reality that we just kind of want to pretend that everyone is wonderful and that everything is great. And it's, it's not that way. Now, that doesn't mean that we hang our heads and that we are always criticizing others and putting others down. It's got nothing to do with that. But it does have to do with, I believe, in, in essence, kind of a, a maturity level that is to be developed in us as believers. A, a way of understanding the truth about ourselves and then subsequently the truth about God and all that God has done. One Christian missionary a long time ago said this, a Christian is like a tea bag, just not much good until it has gone through some hot water. 
And so that's kind of what we want to be thinking about today, that you and I want to be a used tea bag. Not a very pleasant picture, but one that would be accurate. So Paul tells us here that the treasure, that's the good news of Christ, that's the gospel of Christ. You know, it's a, it's a, this message is a treasure. It is that which sets the world free from the bondage of sin. As you and I know, you believe in Christ, we receive from him forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That, that, is, that is a treasure. That is the message that has always been the message, the most important message, because it affects us for all of eternity. And so when he says we have, those two words means that we possess. It is in the present tense, which pictures this as a continual possession. So I always possess this treasure in an earthen vessel, or maybe a clay jar would be another way to uh, describe that. Again, what is the treasure? Well, the way that Paul describes it here is very eloquent. He says, it is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now keep in mind, when we talk about the gospel, what is it about the gospel, which would be, again, uh, the coming of the Son of Man, taking on flesh, living on earth as a man, living perfectly, then offering himself up freely to be crucified on our behalf, where God placed on him our sin, Christ then being punished for our sin as if he had committed them, paying the price in full, dying, being buried, then raising again from the dead, then ascending to the Father, soon to return. How does that speak of the glory of God? Well, the way that it speaks of the glory of God is we see in that, which we've talked about before, the great love of God and the justice of God at the same time. That God loves us, but because of who he is, he cannot allow sin to dwell on a permanent basis in his presence, which would exclude everybody from heaven. God then could not just pretend that we've done no wrong. That would make him a party to evil. That would make him partial. And so God must punish sin. But we know from the scripture that the penalty for sin is the eternal death of the one who sinned. Again, puts us in a pretty bad position. Because there's nothing we can do to change that. But God in his grace supplied for us a substitute that reveals the glory of God. He did so willingly because he loved us. That displays the greatness of who he is. He did so by sending his own son to take our place. So sin is still punished. Yet we then can now be the recipients of eternal life because the penalty has been paid on our behalf by God. And this is an offer which is offered to all men freely. Regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your economic status, regardless of anything you can imagine, it is free. All we do is place our trust, our confidence, our belief in Christ. There's nothing about that story, nothing about the truth of this story that doesn't scream the greatness and the glory of God in doing this. And that's what he means by this. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
When he mentions us as being basically jars of clay or earthen vessels, it's a figurative description of our bodies. It emphasizes our weakness and frailty. All right, so he's beginning again with reality. We are weak, we are frail. In a word, the treasure is the creational, transforming power of the gospel. It is placed into followers of Christ, and we are pictured as being contemptible jars of clay. See, that last phrasing, that's the kind of language that some people, maybe many people outside of Christianity, can't stand. It is an attitude that is being brought into the church by some, that we should not speak this way about people because it's negative. It is simply positive. It, it is because it's truthful in every way. We are not, we don't say these things to ourselves or to others because we desire to inflict harm. We're not saying these things or believing these things because we think we are better than others. It's got nothing to do with that. This is just reality. Apart from Christ, we are rebellious sinners against God. We are contemptible. In fact, when you do a little bit of study about these jars of clay, this, the words that Paul uses here, these earthenware vessels, they were actually very common in every home in the ancient world. They were not very durable. And if they were broken, they were absolutely useless. They were cheap, and they were of little intrinsic value. And God chose to put his light and glory in the everyday cheap dishes, not in fine china. So, even though we are almost always drawn to the things that have the best packaging, I'm sure you are aware, you've heard at least heard of this, that most of the time, all advertisers, or those who, I guess, create things that they want us to buy, you know, they, they, they spend a lot of time thinking about the best way to package their products. I was watching a comedian once talk about the way that shampoo is advertised and packaged for men and women. And the main difference is, is that for the man, to get the men, because most men don't think about shampoo, it's just, where's the closest bottle? I'll pour it on my head and then rinse it out. And so what they want to produce for men is, the, the shampoo for men is produced in bottles that are gunmetal color. It's not going to be pretty pastels. It's not going to have flowers and perfume in it. It's gunmetal gray. Or maybe just black with gray writing. Because that's, and then maybe it's got a hand grip on it. You know, so you can grab it. That, why do they go through all of that? Because that's the man for what, he's, he's a trap. You can say we're shallow. We are. But the idea is, is that's what we, that's what we move towards. And you'll notice that a lot of these products that are, you know, people say all they say all they want about, you know, that, that the sexes are equal and the same and all of that. And there's a lot of that's true, but there's a whole lot of differences between us. Because you don't see a lot of women reaching for the gunmetal gray, right? There's a lot of other <laughs> things that they want. And so that's the idea. So why then would God put this great message in the, in the cheap dishes, so to speak? Well, God doesn't need others to see the package. What he wants them to see is Jesus and see that Jesus came as a man to the earth. And again, Jesus was not embarrassed to live as an earthen vessel. God is not embarrassed to use clay pots like us. In fact, it brings him greater glory. Some of you may be familiar with this individual. He was very, very well known and popular in the 1980s. 
Uh, he was a preacher in California named Chuck Swindoll. And he says this, Paul likens authentic gospel ministers to ordinary earthen vessels, fragile clay pots that nevertheless contain the priceless treasure of the gospel. Now again, when a lot of writers use that phrasing, authentic gospel ministers, he's not talking about just preachers. It's all believers. It's all of us. God could have displayed his light through angelic beings, direct visions and dreams, or even through personal uh, divine revelations to each individual. He could have, because God is bound by nothing but his own plans and promises. Yet God, for his own purposes, has decided to reveal the treasure through us. So why us? Why me? Well, when Paul likens us to earthen vessels, in some ways he is being optimistic. Some days we are just unshaped and unattractive lumps of clay. We should be honored and humbled in the extreme to be included in God's plan to preserve and proclaim his priceless message. Yet somehow in the process, we often forget the clay pot reality. So in our churches, we work hard to impress each other. Maybe we work even harder to impress visitors. We try to handle the scriptures with ease and finesse. Now it's true we are motivated to minister with excellence, to offer service to God with our whole heart. God is not pleased with the just wing it attitude or a hapless shoot from the hip approach to ministry. That attitude doesn't honor the treasure. God delights in thoroughness and hard work and excellence. A noble offering to God can easily cross the line into shameless showmanship. That we must do and give our best in service to our Savior, we must never shine the spotlight on ourselves. Rather, we are to let his light shine through us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that the all-surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. John Piper says, God uses weak, afflicted clay pots to carry the surpassing power of the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. What happens when these clay pots preach the gospel and offer themselves as servants? Well, the answer is there. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This means that in the dark and troubled heart of unbelief, God does what he did in the dark and unformed creation at the beginning of, our, of the world. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So he says to the blind and dark heart, let there be light, and there is light in the heart of the sinner. In this light, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. As you can see the emphasis there again, there's this humility that is there that is not about us. So when we have these, sometimes you know, we make these excuses that we, we can't or we don't want to share the word of God because we're not gifted verbally. Or it's just not my personality. Or there's others who do it so much better than I do. It's not about our eloquence. It's never been about that. It's not about whether or not you stumble through things. Or even give the wrong reference to some verse that you're quoting. God knows all of those things. What he wants you and I to do is to simply share what we know to be true. And we allow our light to shine. Our light then is the transformative power of Christ. I am now at least more loving and kind than I would have been apart from God. I may not be where I need to be, but I'm much farther along than I would have been. We want people to see that there's a, a genuine love and care for other people. 
that hopefully goes beyond just the normal care and love that other people have for each other. Paul goes on in verses 8 through 10, and he says, we are afflicted in every way. So he's back to the suffering. Notice how he writes, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. A couple of things I want you to make note of. Number one is this. All of the verbs in verses 8 and 9 are in the present tense. So again, it's this continuous action. In other words, what Paul is saying is he is continuously afflicted. He is continually perplexed. He is continually persecuted. And he is continually struck down. So these things that are happening to him and around him is an ongoing thing. It doesn't mean that it's happening every second of the day, but it's the norm. His normal week, this is what takes place in his life. But you also notice that in these verses, we have the word but, which appears a great deal. It draws a very strong contrast between these. There's like a couplet here in each of these. And then we have our English word not used a great deal. We are afflicted, then you have the word but, not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. So he is emphasizing these things by saying that Paul is then denying that these actions or attitude are his continued state. So he is afflicted on a regular basis, but that doesn't define him. He's not crushed. He is perplexed on a regular basis, but Paul is never driven to despair. Paul is persecuted, but he's not forsaken. Paul is struck down, but he's not destroyed. And he and he's, says we, because it's not just himself he's speaking of. There's others with him. This is the state that many Christians find themselves in. This actually here is the norm. And he also wants us to understand here that the effects should not be divorced from their cause. So again, when Paul says he's squeezed, so to speak, but not squashed, it's not because Paul is gutting it out. It is because he is relying on the surpassing greatness of the power of God to sustain him through the fiery trials. So this paradigm that we are to have, this view of ourselves and life, as we depend upon God, you and I will be able, because we are empowered by God, to accept these things and live on in life and not feel sorry for ourselves, not reach to despair. We do not become crushed. So you see, he's talking about the reality of the world, the reality of the world's reaction to the believer, which is primarily the reaction of the world to the message of Jesus Christ because it's overwhelmingly not popular. But we never then get to this position that the way that we are treated, the very real way that we may be treated, ever defines us. There is never any room, really, never any reason for us then to become depressed because others aren't affirming us with positive speech, because we don't need it. 
We don't need to be affirmed by other people. We don't need it. We will be affirmed by God himself. Now we know as Christians that most of the time, God ministers to us through other people. So then, even though I don't go looking for affirmation from people, God may meet my need because I may be uh, afflicted, etc., by causing other believers to affirm me in whatever way I, God sees necessary to encourage my heart. So he does use people in that positive way in my life, but I'm not depending upon them, I'm depending upon God. When I then need those things, I'm convinced God will make sure that those things will come around. So we don't have to focus and feel sorry for ourselves because no one around us seems to understand or no one around us is affirming us with positive speech and positive notes. It's not about us. We are much stronger than we think we are. We don't need to be weak like the world. When I say that the world is weak, the world, there is a psychological and emotional weakness that is in the world. We don't overcome that because we're just better or stronger. We overcome that because we are dependent upon Christ. He then gives me the strength that I need, the proper understanding of truth, to where I don't need that. Not because I'm better. Not because I'm tougher. I may be more of a wuss than they are. But God affirms in me these truths. And I'm fine. And I don't have to feel sorry for myself or go in a room and shut the door and weep and cry. I don't have to do that. I should be weeping and crying for those who don't know Christ. Not because I've not been lifted up. Not because I've not been encouraged. There is to be a very real toughness in the life of the believer. But a toughness that is expressed in gentleness and love and kindness expressed not only to other believers but even our enemies. It is unexplainable to the world. In fact, it'll make many of them even more upset when you react that way. No matter. God gives us what we need. This is the paradigm. This is the understanding that sets us free from the bondage of how the world thinks and what the world thinks people need. Again, all this is done so that the excellence of his glory can be seen. One commentator says, if you read the story of Gideon carefully, it was in the breaking of vessels that made the light shine forth and bring victory to God's people. Now, if you don't know the story, in brief, it's this. The Midianites have been basically ripping off the Jews for a long time. They were dominant. They would steal their crops, steal their animals, uh, there was nothing Israel could do. They didn't have an army. And the Midianites were just devastating them all the time. And there was a very large encampment. And Gideon, as we know, was a man who, he didn't have strong faith, but he believed in God, and God was going to use him to deliver Israel. And so when it came to putting together this army, this squadron of men to fight, remember that there were thousands and thousands of men that showed up. And the first thing that God, and, and I think that in the valley there are about 30,000 Midianites, so there's a good number. And so when these thousands of individuals come to help Gideon and the volunteer, though they would still be outnumbered, God told Gideon, now hey, you got too many men. 
And so he says, you know, just announce to all those who don't really want to be in the fight to go ahead and go home. So he did. And a whole bunch left. And God said, you know, Gideon, you, you got too many men. And so he said, though, watch how they drink water from the river. And so the ones who kind of get down and drink it up, you know, lap it up with, you know, put their face in the water, he says, just send them home. But the ones who stand there and kind of scoop the water up because they're kind of looking out for the enemy and they're drinking whatever little water they can have in their hand, that's the ones that you keep. And so when that was all finished, there was a grand total of 300 men. And then God basically said, now you got enough. And there was only one reason for that. So that it would be clear for all of history that Gideon and his men did not win that fight, that it was God himself. Because 300 men, even if they had guns, which there was no such thing back then, are not going to defeat 30,000 trained soldiers. And then God gave them these very special weapons. And he told them to have a trumpet and then to have a torch and to put the torch in a clay pot. Now you're ready for battle. Okay, these guys have bows and arrows, spears and swords, chariots, and we've got clay pots, torches, and trumpets. I think we are ready. God then has them divide up, and what they were supposed to do is light their torches, but you can't see the torches, they're in the clay pots. And then they were to break the clay pots, then the light would shine, and of course we know the story that as they break the, clots, the, the, the pots, and as they raise the, the torch and they blow their trumpets and shout to the glory of the Lord and of Gideon, the Midianites just go into a sheer absolute panic and end up slaughtering each other until basically they kill each other and then are left. So even though we would say that Gideon had a great victory, we would, what we would really say is, well, God gave Gideon a great victory because, I mean, what did you do in the battle? Tell me about the fighting. Well, I, I broke my pot. And I, and I stomped on it. And I raised my torch, and man, did I yell. Yeah, but, you know, how did you beat the enemy? I just told you. Well, how does that work? It's God. And it goes right back to that. So the idea is, is that, you know, we have a lot of blemishes in our life. We do. We, we are broken many times. That's who God's looking for. It's the broken pot. It's the broken vessel. And so the more broken our life is, perhaps the better. Because the only thing that can shine through in those situations is going to be God. And so here Paul shows how God breaks his clay pots so that the excellence of his power may be of God and not of us. Paul knew that the power and the, and the victory of Jesus in this life uh, because he was continually in situations where only the power and victory of Jesus could be met. I have a quote in your uh, notes there, and this one, I believe, helps us to understand this paradigm. It says, in America, this is written by um, a, actually not only a foreign missionary, but a, uh, an individual who um, was not English and was serving in another country as a missionary. But he said he's noticed that in America, Christians pray for the burden of suffering to be lifted from their backs. In the rest of the world, Christians pray for stronger backs so they can bear their suffering. And I think we, should, we need to remember that. When we suffer, and when we pray for each other, when we pray for God to deliver believers from suffering, that's not a sin. 
It's not bad for us to do that. And it's not wrong for you and I to ask the Lord to perhaps lift the suffering that we're going through. But that's all that we're praying for. We've missed something. Because what many Christians around the world recognize, because we are in a very unique position in church history, just so you know that. What many Christians in the world realize is that suffering is the way of life. That's, that's not Buddhism. Buddhism does teach that, and they go way off the rails after that. But it's an acceptance that suffering is a part of life. And that this deliverance that God brings is going to look very different than what we want suffering or deliverance from suffering to look like. And so this is what we should be praying. So if you are in a troubled marriage, and even perhaps if your spouse is, is not a believer, pray that God would give you more patience more grace, more wisdom. Not that God will take him out. When you and I are having trouble at work, we don't pray that our boss gets COVID and we can have relief. Pray that God will give us patience and strength and wisdom to endure so what? His grace can shine. If you're having difficulty at school and there's others who may pick on you or they may not because we don't always think about our kids who are Christians having to endure things, but they do. You don't want them just to gut it out. We, we do want that. But we want their toughness to come from their identity with Christ. And we, that's where we want God's grace to shine through. And so that's what we pray for. Don't pray for your kids to be delivered all the time from difficult situations. Pray that God would deliver them in it which would mean that God would give them grace and strength, that they would learn to depend upon God. Remember that if our children don't learn to depend upon God under our tutelage when they're young, they will not depend upon God when they become adults, and they'll be in trouble. Remember, the world does not like us. They will not be there for us. That's not doomsday stuff. That's just reality. It's the same thing that Christ has taught us. And so I would say that maybe we should frame that kind of phrase and think about it a great deal to better guide our praying through times of great difficulty. Even when it comes to those, you know, we, uh, uh, we're often moved with great compassion for the believers and for churches, for people as well. But, you know, there was a series of tornadoes a couple weeks ago that, you know, went through all these different places. And we want to, we want to help these people. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. We pray for believers. Let's pray that God would give them strength and grace. They had, they had to endure loss like everyone else. But they need to live in such a way that they handle it differently. That they don't whine and complain like everybody else. They are gracious and kind and helpful to other people. Even if they have less. Maybe even more so if they have less. We're, we're quick to want to alleviate physical suffering. Again, not necessarily a bad thing. But that's not all there is. There's so much more that is so much more important. John MacArthur says this, and he's talking about the same subject, but he's talking about Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, which reads, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's easily applicable to those who go through any kind of difficulty and they begin to drift away from what the Word of God says. John MacArthur says that the, ver the verb here uh, means to be at one's wit's end. 
And he says this, Paul cannot understand how they could have been taught the gospel so well, believed it so genuinely, and then appeared to have forsaken it so quickly. Every time a Christian experiences times when he comes to an impasse and finds his own resources are completely exhausted, after saying and doing everything he knows and, and say and do, those he is trying to help, sometimes unbelievers, sometimes believers, remain completely out of his reach, and they may even turn against him. And it's during these times that people will move away from the gospel. At least one of the things that's going on is they don't have the right paradigm. A paradigm that is shaped by the word of God. That's why the way that Paul says what he's saying in chapter 4 here of 2 Corinthians is so important. Why we need to adopt that so that we are thinking God's thoughts after him. So that we then again can be free from the bondage of the world. And we can approach life and we can live life that is truly victorious. Where we are going through the same things everyone else is, but so much differently. In a book that is the Weast Word Study, says that the verb is in the middle voice, which speaks of the inward distress of a mind that is tossed to and fro by conflicting doubts and fears. The Greek says here in Galatians, he says, I am perplexed in you. Paul's perplexity is conceived as being in the Galatians. Again, what he's saying is, I am puzzled as to how to deal with you and how to find an entrance into your hearts. And the reason why, he, again, he's perplexed is because they know the gospel. He's like, I, I don't get this. You know Christ. Why is this happening? I don't know if you've ever heard this guy. He's, he's been dead for a while now. His name was Vance Havner. He actually became famous when he got into his 70s. He was a skinny man from North Carolina. Uh, he looked old. Uh, some say that they think he weighed about 110. Um, he just, a real country kind of a guy who had incredible wisdom because he knew the word of God and he knew God. And he says this, I love the old song that says, you must walk that lonesome valley. You must walk it by yourself. Nobody else can walk it for you. You must walk it by yourself. And then he goes on. You see, this song begins by saying that Jesus walked his lonesome valley. And it comes to a victorious finish by affirming that he is walking by our side. But it's not that he will walk that valley for us, but he will walk it with us. He assures us in the word, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. No one, not even the Lord, can assume our responsibility to walk our valley. But sometimes precious human companionship makes it less lonely, and our Lord will never leave us nor forsake us in that lonesome valley. Again, he doesn't walk it for us, but he does walk it with us. That is the attitude that we must embrace as believers because it is the truth of God. It is not a fearful thing for us. As it says in the 23rd Psalm that was read today, I will fear no evil though I walk what? through the valley of the shadow of death. We are going to walk through that valley more than once. We do not need to fear. There is a genuine bravery that comes. But again, not because we are confident or because we've just been through stuff before. Though it does help if you've been through stuff before and your reliance upon Christ, you've seen the hand of God. Because the goal is not only to get through it, but as we get through it, the light of the glory of God shines in our bodies. And in that, I believe, 
many will become interested in the gospel of Christ because they see the reality. They see the truth of God because the world knows that when it comes to how things really are, there's a lot of suffering in the world and no one can escape. So how is it you seem to have escaped though you're suffering? Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for the great strength that you give us through the indwelling spirit of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that when you saved us from our sin, that you didn't just turn us loose to fend for ourselves. But Father, we entered into an intimate relationship with you where that you are indwelling us 24-7. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand the things that Paul is saying. Help us, Father, to embrace the attitude, the paradigm that is laid out for us by Paul. Help us, Father, to be the kind of individual that is living their life in total reliance upon God and never depending upon our own strength, knowing that in that we will always, in a sense, be victorious. Though we may suffer for the rest of our lives, we will have a great understanding and patience. We'll have a great love for others. And we will have great joy if others are seeing the hand of God in us. Oh, Father, how we need your help with this. Because this is not the normal thing. We need your strength. We need, Father, for you to place in us a desire to live in submission to your word. Father, we really do want to be free from the way the world thinks. We pray, Lord, you would help us. We ask, Lord, you help us to recognize that it's not about positive thinking and some, and memorizing a bunch of nice slogans, but it comes back to you and I spending time together, depending upon you, coming to you in prayer, reading your word, and moving out in total reliance upon you. For each one, Father, who does that, I pray that you would fill their heart with great confidence and joy. Father, for those who have experienced it in the past and it's been lacking, we pray, Lord, that you would give them such a great longing that they'd be willing, Lord, to, to do what's necessary to do the right thing and to embrace your word. Father, for those who may be outside of this, we ask, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin, convict them, Father, of their self-reliance, and help them to understand and grasp that we all have the exact same need, that we need Christ desperately. And we ask, Lord, for those who do not know Christ, that, Lord, you would magnify their understanding of the suffering that they are experiencing. And helping them to realize, Lord, there is no escape. There is no overcoming. And they will never have the ability or the strength on their own. There will never be enough money that they can earn or make that will alleviate them from the internal struggles that they suffer from. And that the peace that they're longing for, the contentment they're longing for, the satisfaction they're longing for, is only found in Christ. But I pray, Lord, that for those of us who believe in Christ, that that would be the living reality in us that they may see that and see that we experience that, that they may even be moved to jealousy to want to possess what we possess. Thank you, Father, for being so patient with us. We ask, Lord, that you would bring about in our lives that dynamic change that we may need. That, Father, again, that we may be those that walk in the light. Thank you, Father, again, for even in our disobedience, you have not left us nor forsaken us. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.